All right, we're going to do a little less um, of the running around the scripture um, as we've done, just because of this, this discussion of sin and original sin and a lot of these things is so foundational to everything else that we're going to spend a little time in it. Um, and uh, it kind of dovetails with a uh, question that uh, Kay asked a couple of weeks ago. And so I've been doing my research, found some interesting things uh, that I was not aware of. Um, so kind of want to run through about, you know, uh, we talked about Calvinism and which denominations and specifically the baptism, Baptist congregation, what, what is, what's their view on it. I didn't know there were so many Baptist groups. I knew there was a number of them, but I didn't know exactly how many, and some of them no longer exist or hardly exist or have transitioned, and it's kind of uh, interesting. Uh, so Calvinism is taught by a number of groups, uh, whether they avoid the name Calvinism or not. Uh, uh, it is taught by uh, Presbyterian, not a church we have here, but Anglican um, and Episcopalian, which would be the American form of the Anglican Church. Um, there is, uh, amongst Baptist groups, this is where it got interesting. Um, it's taught, if it says Reformed in front of it, it's, it's a Calvinist. It's a full Calvinist congregation. Uh, so they, they're called uh, strict, or sometimes they're called particular Baptists, which is a weird name, primitive Baptists, regular Baptists. United Baptist, Sovereign Grace Baptist, and all of these are like probably a bunch of smaller groups. Um, and uh, uh, the particular Baptist is the one where Charles Spurgeon was from, which is why he's easily the most recognizable Baptist preacher in history. Um, and so uh, that, is a, that is the church that really was popular, the Baptist church that was popular in the United States um, uh, until like the early 1900s. And so and then, then what we'd call the evangelical movement kind of started influencing it and, and took things away. And it started to move away from Calvinism is actually how it works, which is the exact opposite of the way I understood it. Um, so um, there are, um, let's see. Oh, I, I learned this is interesting. If you see First Baptist, I always thought that that was a denomination. It's not. It just means whoever was the first one in town. So a First Baptist could be a particular Baptist. It could be uh, Reform. It could be any any group. Whichever one got there first, they threw. They, yeah. Because I saw in Lubbock one time when my dad had surgery, it said second. Yes. Baptist. Yes. Like, well. So do they try harder, or you know, what, what, what does second <laughs> Baptist mean? <laughs> it's like we're not really all in. You know, we're just the second one. No, that means that they were the second one in town. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, you don't see those too many. It's uh, after the first, they usually just keep whatever their their name is. But in some places, it was, I guess, important to know that you were the second in town. I don't know why you want that. But uh, today, uh, probably, if you've heard of John Piper, anybody heard of John Piper? Okay, he's uh, an avowed uh, Calvinist amongst, uh, amongst Baptist preachers. Uh, a guy, some that you don't know, but that are important. Tom Nettles um, is a, a more of an author. 
um, than a like a preacher, but uh, he's a professor at Southern Baptist. Southern, I'm going to try that once more time. Uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, and and he's written some books. And it, there's a guy by the name of um, Tom Askell, um, who is uh, he's established. Um, what's called the Southern Baptist Founders Ministry, and his goal is to bring Baptist churches back to what they originally were, which is Calvinist. That's, that's, his, that's the whole goal of it. Uh, so uh, there is an intent within the Southern Baptists, even though they, it's not technically in any charter that they have, there is a movement within them to say, listen, this is what people like Charles Spurgeon, and these are what our at the origin of who we are, this is what we were. We believed in full Calvinist from A to B, I mean, we, or A to Z. We, we believed it all, and we need to get back there. And, and, and their view is that's, that's original to them. So, so there is now, so I want to talk about the various forms of Calvinism because most churches in the United States believe in some form of it. It's just how far they want to go. Uh, you have... Uh, see, I didn't... I, that's probably the one I didn't. Uh, that's interesting. But that's, that's the one that is really strong in Arkansas where I... Okay. In fact, my mother's side of the family is all missionary. They, okay, so, um, you know, I, I remember reading... A, I didn't think about it as the name of a church, but I remember that one of the things that was hotly debated at the time was whether they should get into missionary alliances and things like that. And so there was a church that broke from from the Calvinist side of things that was very into missions. So that might have become the missionary church. That's 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 probably I didn't think of it as its own denominations. Oh yeah, they they're very specific. They're okay. Yeah, that was that was a hot debate a uh, hundred years ago. They didn't know if if we should have missionary alliances and various things like that, and even among churches of Christ, that was a, a big debate. So uh, whether we should have Bible colleges, all sorts of weird stuff. So, um, <clears throat> so those who teach limited Calvinism, there is almost every church, and I would bet even the missionaries, Baptists would would hold one point of of this. Um, so, are you, is anybody familiar with what we call tulip? Okay, so tulip is it's just an acrostic. Uh, it's a memory tool for how you teach the five points of Calvinism. Uh, it begins with what we call total depravity of man. Um, that that's another that's a fancy word for original sin. Okay, uh, you have the U, which is unconditional election. That's the predestination side of things. Uh, limited atonement is now you get into like these logical well if it's if there's unconditional election and not everyone's going to heaven then God must have limited how many people can get there right so that's limited atonement Uh, then you have I which is irresistible grace which is another logical argument it's not really founded in scripture and that says um, well if if you're predestined if God has predestined you, then <clears throat> you can't stop yourself from going there. You're going to go there one way or the other. God, God has predestined you, and you will go, whether you like it or not. I don't want to go to heaven. Well, you're going. Too bad. It's irresistible. You cannot resist me. You're getting kind of 
funny out there in, in tulip land. Uh, and so then you have a thing called perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved is, is one of is those. Um, that, that's another way to say that. So, so every, everyone will, will have at least one of these. Almost every church in our country has some form of Calvinism in it. Uh, either they have the perseverance of the saints view, or they have the original sin view. And those two, um, so there's what we call one-point Calvinism, which would be they would hold one of those. Uh, and most, most are what we would call two-point two Baptists. They call themselves two-point Baptists or three-point Baptists, which is they would believe the first one and the last one at the very least. Um, and uh, which would be once saved, always saved. And, you know, this fallen nature of man and, and, and original sin kind of being passed down or something like that. So, um, and then what, what, and this is why we'll get into why there's this movement to go back to it in full. All of these developed as a logical, uh, uh, Calvin worked from Augustine's theories, right? And Augustine's theories were very basic. And what all John Calvin did was just apply some logic to Augustine's theories that had been around for a thousand years. And one point demands the next, logically speaking. If, if you start from, from the total depravity of man, you have to figure out how people are going to heaven, because I can't be saved, because I'm totally depraved. I can't choose for myself. Once you say that, I have to figure out how people are going to heaven. And I also have to quantify how some people are not going to heaven. And, and so all of those points will logically... And as soon as you try to take those out, because they're clearly unscriptural, logic, someone's going to ask a question, and you're going to end up right where you were. You can't have one without all five. And, and when you get and, and you see how how silly some of them are uh, when, when you get down to it, they're, they're just flat out against Scripture. Um, and, and that's we've kind of pointed that out uh, a couple weeks ago when we went through uh, original sin and, and some of this, uh, some of these ideas. Um, we'll, we're going to continue to go through those in a second. I'm just trying to uh, get through some of the, the setup material. Um, and so if, if by nature I cannot do good, well, God has to predestine me to salvation. And so Augustine found predestination in the Bible, and, and he kind of misinterpreted it. Um, and that also has to do with his background in Greek philosophy. Uh, he, so then, uh, so uh, this is what uh, your options are. You either have to be consistent, right? You don't want to, no one wants to be hypocritical. Um, your other option um, is to be completely inconsistent if you, you, if you take out some of these views, right? I'm going to make the ones that seem ridiculous. I'm going to take those out. And, um, and then it's, it's obvious how inconsistent your views are. Well, we don't want that. So, so your other option is to change your theology. And the, unfortunately, that's the one that no one can abide. 
people just cannot change their theology. It's so difficult for us, even me, it's difficult for me to change things. I've, I've thought, especially the older you are, and you've gone to Bible college, and you've, you know, you're a theologian, and you've been preaching for, you know, and people know what you believe, and you're on record, and now I'm going to change? That's really hard to do. That's really hard ask for people. So, uh, so what people typically do is they just double down and stick to their guns. Regardless of the hypo- hypocrisy, um, so one of the, the things that really is, is illogical, and this is why some Baptists back off, or probably even most of them, is because we get into this idea that if God predestines certain people to heaven, God predestined everything, right? Uh, and, and so that means God is forcing some people to hell. God is forcing some people to sin, because, because the idea is I can do nothing good in myself. I cannot choose good. So, so God is, in a sense, predestining sin. And that's, that this, is, you get, this is where you, it gets illogical and, and, and goofy. What, what are we doing? <laughs> that's not in the scripture. It's directly, God cannot tempt anyone to sin. He can't sin. Like, God doesn't have connection to sin. So how are you doing this? Now let me read a quote. Because that's so obviously wrong. Let me read a quote from John Calvin himself. Adam did not fall without the ordination and the will of God. That's John Calvin. John Calvin realized that he was going to be completely inconsistent if he didn't say that. And so I suppose out of a weirdly positive desire to be consistent with his own views, he doubled down and said some of the most heretical things that have ever been said, because that's, that's what you have to get to if you believe this. If you believe any of this. Once you start talking about man's fallen nature in the garden, this is where it goes. We do not have a fallen nature. We are still made in the image of God. That's in the New Testament. Uh, so it's important for us to understand that. This is why it's so, so vital. And this is why we're spending this amount of time. So, yes? What is it that um, John Calvin was... I feel like John Calvin was trying to kind of answer some scriptures that he felt didn't, were inconsistent. What, what was it? Was Great question. That's a segue to my next point. <laughs> awesome question. We're going to get there. She did, well, she didn't read the rest of it because she would have known the answer. So she just read the next line. So let me give you the key. But that no, that's a really good question. Uh, the key to the theological... That, that is the crux. That, that question is the important question. Why? Why it's weirdness? Um, and, and there's a key to any theological discussion that you will ever have. And this is just kind of a discovery I've made... And I wish I would have discovered it a long time ago before I argued. Because yeah, I used to argue and argue and argue and argue and argue and not get anywhere. And I wondered why, listen, I'm saying all the right things. Not even in a vain way, like I'm so smart. But like, these are, this is scripture. I can read it for myself. Why aren't you accepting this? There are three levels of 
any part of a theological debate, in my, the way I classify it. You can classify it different if you wish. There are other arguments we use. Right? We go back, and this is where we spend all our time. When we have a theological discussion, we run back and forth in this verse and that verse, and we both walk away. I, saw, I went to a debate. A really good friend of mine was in a debate over the subject of Calvinism uh, with an older gentleman. And uh, he actually asked me to prep him, like, like be his, like, I go, uh, the opposition prior to. And I was trying to fire stuff at him. And so I was sitting uh, in the front row with them. And the, guy, the other guy uh, did his opening remarks, not even the debate itself. And so it's just like a 10-minute opening. And, and, and Paul leads over to me and says, he's already taken so many scriptures out of context. If I just spent the rest of the debate on those verses, I could not have enough time to put it back together. That's how horrific this argument is. And so uh, this is where we spend our time on arguments, going back and forth. And everybody, and we, we milled around afterwards and chatted with them. It was nice. Uh, it was kind of their turf. But... Uh, but we, we had a great time with, with the people, nice people. No one changed their minds. I didn't change my mind. He was a good debater. The other guy was a really good debater. And no one on, on their side changed. And here's all these arguments. And only one side could have been right at the most. So why did no one change? Because that's the argument level. And that's the, the most superficial level is where we argue back and forth about things. This is the mechanics uh, of the belief, I guess. You go down a, a layer, and it gets more substantive. We get to definitions of things. You've, you ever been in an argument where you were disagreeing about things, and then when it came down to it, you were both saying the same thing? And you, it's like I, I, you, you hit a point where you're like, I think we're saying the same thing. And we've been arguing for like an hour now. <laughs> Because so much is in your definitions, right? How, how you define words is very important. Uh, and, and people are very um, attached to the way they define things. I, I want you to define it the way I do. Uh, and so we, we get into this um, a lot of times. If I have time, I don't know if I'll have time. Uh, give you kind of an illustration of some of these things. but Because um, I want to hit the, the really important point. After all that, we get down to the core. The core is the important thing. We very seldom address the core in our discussions. The core is the center of the argument, that the, the object or that idea, it's, its essence. And I, I always try to think, what is it if I had to boil any religion down to one statement or one sentence? You know, what is it that, that really, or a belief, if you want to maybe just kind of focus on one idea that you go, these people are, are wrong on this. What is the core? Why? The why? It is whatever is being protected. And if people are feeling that they have to protect something, there's nothing you can do to change that. And sometimes... What people are protecting is correct, or it, it's a good idea. They're protecting it in the incorrect way. But they, they, they have a, this idea that 
their arguments are directly connected to this core that they're trying to protect. Um, so this is, the, as I say, this is the common error. We focus all of our, so, so you, you'll be in a debate with somebody and you'll go, and you'll show them all the scriptures that talk about baptism, right? You can go through Acts 2.38 and Mark 16.15 and 16, and we'll go Acts 22.16, we'll first pray to 3.21, and we we'll just... Right? And Bill go, no. No. Why? What are they protecting? They're protecting something. And it doesn't make a difference. People will sacrifice their arguments... It's, it, if you think of it like a chess game, people will sacrifice really important pieces, right? They'll give up their, they'll give up the bishop, they'll give up the knight. Why? What are they protecting? They're protecting the king. And they're going to do anything to protect the king. And that king is that core. You have to find what their king is. What, what, what is the, the thing that they're, and you'll find that a lot, the majority of the time, not all the time, what they're protecting is actually good. They're just going about it in the wrong way. But since you're attacking their arguments, they think you're attacking their king. And you're not. And take baptism, for example. Take baptism. What are people protecting when, when you seem to contradict their understanding of, of salvation? When you talk about needing to be baptized, what are people protecting? Which is what? Doctrine. Grace. People are protecting grace. Is grace a good thing? So if you look like you are... It's your parents' fault. You know that. <laughs> if, if you look like you're attacking grace, you have no chance. Zero. Because that's such a foundational concept of the New Testament. So you'll never convince them. You've got to first convince them that you believe in grace. Because they're going to talk about, oh, you believe in works salvation. Now you're going to have to get into definitions. No, I don't. You've misdefined me. Why? Because they have a definition that works is the same thing as actions. See, it, it, it's, it's, not in the first, it's not in the top level. The problem's not in the top level. The problem's in the second level, and we don't often get there. We're so worried about First Peter three twenty one versus Act, you know this and, and John three sixteen. We're fighting those two. That we never get down into. You know, I don't believe in work salvation. Actions are necessary, but they're not works. I've never believed that an action that is necessary is a work, ever. Not once in my life. Oh. Now that might not convince them, but but you're going to get closer. I, I, the, the conversation can, can go to the, a, a deeper level. So, uh, so I have to listen. Um, <clears throat> so I want to go back to Calvinism. So our common approach is argue. And I'm going to throw out all the verses that we did when we did the first class on this about original sin and 
how we're, you know, well, person's not responsible for the sins of the son, the son's not responsible for the sins of the father. And we're going to throw all those verses, and they're going to come back with, oh, I'm going to visit the punishment upon the third and fourth generation, and blah, 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 blah. Right? So we're going to argue and argue and argue and argue. And we're not going to get anywhere because we don't know what's being protected. What is being protected? Let's Ephesians chapter 1. We will look at a couple of their scriptures. I like that, that, that idea. Like it's, it's theirs and there's ours. Okay? The, the, God, God segmented his Bible and said, all right, these verses are for the Calvinists. These are for the free will people. And Ephesians chapter 1. Someone want to read verse 4 and 5. And then one more, Proverbs 16.9. Who would like to read that? Proverbs 16.9. Typically, I've trying, been trying to go around, but we don't have that many today, so I'll just kind of skip around. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Okay, we've read this one previously. They're, they're both in there, right? I didn't slip those in. No one slipped those in while no one was looking. Those are in there. Sure. John 17, verse 12. Yeah, yeah. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is being protected? What does Calvinism protect? It's a good idea, by the way. That's being protected. You're blameless. You're blamed. You're guiltiness. It's deeper than, it's more noble than anything to do with me. It's much deeper than that, that they are protecting. It's one word. They're protecting the sovereignty of God. You are not going to convince anybody by attacking the sovereignty of God. <laughs> it's just like, well, all these... Because that's the way they define it. The sovereignty of God. The sovereign will of God. Well, if you look like you're trying to contradict that God is sovereign, well, you, on your bike. Because <laughs> we're not having none of that. You, you have zero chance to convince a person. See, they're, they're protecting something that is a noble goal. A noble concept. And I just thought they were trying to be against the Bible the whole time. No. So, <clears throat> my approach then has to change. And this is why I say I wish I would have figured this out a long time ago. I probably would have had, I don't know if I would have convinced anybody. Actually, I did convince one person one time to give up Calvinism. I said, you got three daughters. They're pretty. His name was Lonnie. I said, you got three daughters. Which two are going to hell? Because broad is the way it leads to destruction. That means two of your girls go into hell and they have no chance. He comes up to me the next day, he's like, I gave that up. 
But that's where the practicality of it hits. That's where the practicality of it hits. Um, but I want to look at the, um, the elements of the will of God and some of the definitions of things. I want to look at four concepts of the will of God. Because I can't appear to be contradicting that God is sovereign. And God is sovereign, but he does it in four ways. He has four different types of will. He does not have one type of will. See, a Calvinist only accepts the first one. The first one is what we call the positive will of God. Um, I want to read... We'll start over here. Uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. This is what they would view, and it's kind of similar to, to the one you're talking about with, with Judas. Uh, uh, Diane, could you read Exodus 9, 15 and 16? Okay, so, so this is where God makes things happen. Uh, you can't stop it, I'm doing it. Uh, and Isaiah, even, even more notably, like 150 years ahead of time, he ordained Cyrus and then says, just try and stop me, I'm going to give you the guy's name. There's going to be a guy by the name of Cyrus who's going to take over and conquer a country who hasn't even conquered yet, Assyria was still in the process of reaching their, their zenith. Right? We've been talking about this on Wednesday night. Right? And, and, and after, actually, no, there's two countries ahead. Because then Babylon's going to come ahead and, and defeat them. And then he says, and then after that, I'm going to raise up a guy who's going to take out that country. So you've got 150 years to figure out how to stop me. And you're not going to do it. That, that's the positive, what we call the positive sovereignty or positive will of God. God does it. The, the death of Christ. Stop me. I'm going to give you a thousand prophecies of what everything, here's what his death is going to look like. Here's what, where he's going to be born. Uh, here's, you know, here's what his family lineage is going to be. I'm going to give you his family lineage. He's going to give you all the clues. Here's everything. These are the things he's going to do. Stop me. Not going to happen. I'm going to even put a guy in his, uh, in his inner circle that, that's going to betray him. Stop me. You can't. When God says, I'm going to ordain this and it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's one of four areas. Let's uh, look at the next one. Um, look at a couple of scriptures. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. Uh, Glenn, would you like to read that one? And then uh, Travis, if you want to get Romans 1, 10 after that. So Acts 16, 6 and 7, and then Romans 1, 10. Asia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. 
after they had come to Messiah, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Okay. And Travis? In my prayers at all times, and I pray that now, at last, God's will, that by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Okay. So we have a discussion of God's will, still sovereignty. God still has a will. He's still doing things. How is he doing? It's very similar to the positive will of God. What is it? What is God doing? How is God working his will? Closing doors. Yeah. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. This is called the preventative will. He's like, okay, you can try, but I'm not going to let it happen. Right? This, is, uh, this is, you know, uh, in every spy movie, you know, where... Uh, where, where magic people can do things in five seconds. <laughs> and they, they, they can close off like all the, the lanes of traffic so that the guy can only go one way through, the, through Berlin or whatever. And uh, I'm closing doors, and you're going to get to where I want. It, it's kind of predestination, it's kind, but it, it's, it's, the, uh, it, it's, the, it's through what he pr- is preventing. So I want you to get there, but you're not, I'm not going to like force you onto a ship and get you there. I'm just going to prevent every other option. Okay. <laughs> you're going to get where I want. Very similar. Very similar. Um, then we're going to get to something different. Cam, you want to read Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Luke twenty two forty two. No, it's almost never fast. Okay. Uh, uh, Did Jesus have an option? But that's kind of in the text, isn't it? What happened, what happened to the sovereign? Is God not sovereign? Or is he still sovereign? He's still sovereign. I'm not attacking the sovereignty of God. How is God's will working now? Because... He still has a will in this passage. Jesus is denying his will, his own will. Okay. Could it be? I mean, I, I can see both ways of interpreting this. Yeah. Right? Um, so, Father, if you're willing, yeah. take this cup from me. Okay? So, there's a submission to his will. Because ultimately, it's his will will be done. Right? Whether you say so or not, whether you submit to it or not, but he's saying, I have a submissive heart to your will. You know, if you're willing, take this from me. I'm asking you to. But ultimately realizing that it's not going to be his way. It's going to be God's way. So there is, there, is, there is an argument to be made that, you know, that, you know, apart from the, you know, from the, from the idea that Jesus could have just commanded it, Right. Being God and saying, no, this isn't going to happen this way. I decided right. people aren't worth it. Yeah. Um, but there's an argument to be made that it was out of his hands anyway. And you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, like it, during that prayer, he wasn't saying, 
you know, Father, I, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't like this, right? He wasn't saying, Father, I, I know you would take this cup from me if I asked you, mm. right? But, uh, you know, it, your will, not mine, right? But it, it's more, you know, he's saying, so I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just saying that that's, that's an argument that could be made. That, that could be an argument in this yeah. particular, like using this verse, because you could say, wait a second, here, I see submission, right? but I don't necessarily see an acknowledgement that, that he had the, the ability right. to change God's divine will. Right. right. Okay. So, so, so this is so the the crux. This is where the it gets where it gets tricky because we have in all these definitions are important. Is that there is a submission, and where there is a submission, you know, there's there's almost an implied option. Right. I'm I'm not your will, but mine be done, or not my will, but thine be done. And uh, and so, uh, why is that? I mean, this is not. There's there's no other plan. There's not another member of you know, you know, unless the backup plan was well, if he doesn't, if God, the Son doesn't come through, again, I have to have the Holy Spirit incarnate. And, you know, the, uh, those prophecies aren't in the Old Testament. Those aren't there. There's this is this is the moment. This is the moment. And, and someone's going to have to choose to do this. And, and Jesus even confirms. He's like, listen, if I wanted, the Father will send 12 legions of angels. He's, he, he will do it. And I will come down off this cross, and the whole shebang is over. He did say that, too. <laughs> he had an option. He's God. He's Jehovah. He's a part of Jehovah. He had an option. But there's still a sovereign will of God. So how can there be a sovereign will of God if there's a choice? See, I'm not attacking the sovereign will of God. Part, we, we've talked about the positive will of God. This doesn't fall under that. We've talked about the preventative will of God. This doesn't fall under that. There's a thing called the principled will of God. This is what God wants. Right? We talked about those different wills. I will do this, or I want this. Those are all the same word, right? They're all the same word. Uh, so, so this is the principled will of God. And we go through, and that's what our, most of our New Testament is. These are the things that God wants. This is what God wants. Why does he tell me this is what he wants? Because I have an option not to. If there was no option for me to or not to, there would be no instruction. There's no need. I'm just going to do it because God said, you do it. I don't, I don't need instruction. So that's that one. And then the last one that we're going to look at real quick is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. And this is, this is the tricky one. We don't have time to really get into this one. Maybe at some point we'll handle this in a sermon or something. First Peter chapter two verse sixteen. Um, someone want to read that in the move? Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Okay. Live as God's slaves. Okay. Wait a second. Live as God's slaves, but act as free people. What? <laughs> There's a choice. We see again a choice involved, don't we? Much like Christ. 
what kind of will of God is this? It, it kind of is connected to the, per, the principle of the will of God. But he says, act as free people. There's a concept called the permissive will of God. So many people want everything that, they've, that they do to be the will of God. Right? Mike and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. We want the will of God. We want to feel like something that I'm doing is divinely ordained. And it feels, I married the one right woman for me. No, you didn't. Sorry. It's not true. God allowed you. It's, a, it's within the will of God if, if, if he allows it. Because what if she said no? And now you're forced to not live in the will of God for the rest of your life. She marries the wrong person. What about the person that that person was supposed to marry? Well, now they can't live in the will of God. And the person that that person was supposed to marry can't live. Like, no one's married to the person that they're supposed to be by now. It's a couple thousand years later. We've, we're all screwed up. <laughs> Wipe the boards. That's, it's not a logical position, scripturally speaking. So, um, it's the will of God, and God is sovereign because he's allowed us certain things. That's within his will. I have allowed you to choose these things. So act as free people. That's my will. My will is to be generous and give you this it's still sovereign and if you hit a point where i i definitely don't want you to do something i can prevent it or i can punish you eventually if you act outside of what i desire that's also the will of god it's all sovereign i i believe in the sovereignty of god and so i i, I want to close with that i don't have to contradict the will of god or the sovereignty of god we just need to explain what these terms mean and and maybe then we can go Oh, okay, so I don't need to be predestined. I don't, all this doesn't have to be the positive will of God. We're going to close there.